Special thanks to our newest sponsor. Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast Tropics, which makes beer with insanely potent passion fruit and guava notes. I actually brewed with Tropics after we talked about it on episode 188, and the next day the brewery smelled like a guava orchard. Now, Berkeley Yeast just released Thiol Boost, which is a liquid thiol precursor that will take it to another level. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. If I have to measure 14 fermenters as a seller, I'm not only concerned with how accurate I am, but I'm also concerned with what's the length of time it's going to take me to get this done. What's the cost associated with doing this? And then how easy is it for me to use? Um, Can I train other people quickly to go around and uh, knock this out? This week on the show, we take a look at bias and density measurements with an author of a recent Master Brewers Technical Quarterly paper that explores the performance of different instruments. Is the ubiquitous hydrometer the right tool for the job? How can you improve the accuracy and precision of your measurements? Hi, my name is Mike Mosier. I am professor and director of the brewing program here at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, and also co-owner and head brewer at Rule 105 Brewing, also located here in Greeley. Mike, I guess before we talk about bias and density measurements, we better start with what exactly it is that we're measuring. Talk about that. Right. So um, density, or actually wart density, is probably one of the most important things that is measured within the brewery. It has so many different um, outcomes that it can be used for, whether that's to determine mash efficiency or to determine um, as a KPI for a particular brewing operation, uh, or even uh, on the back end being used to 
um, help out with determining the percent ABV in the finished product, we can easily see how density um, is extremely important. And so we took it upon ourselves to look at both density and specific gravity uh, in this study. Okay, but define density for us. What is it? So density is the measurement of a mass of a substance divided by its volume. So that mass of substance can be measured in, say, grams or kilograms, and its volume can be measured in, say, milliliters or cubic meters, some other volume measurement. Just dividing the mass by that volume then tells you the density. And what do our options look like? I'm sure most brewers could rattle off some of the more common options for measuring density in the brewery, but give us a rundown of the instruments you studied. Um, There are numerous different instruments that can be used to measure wort density or the specific gravity of a particular substance. We ran across four that we thought would be very useful to know information about. In particular, uh, the hydrometer, a very common uh, instrument that's um, used to measure wart density, works by measuring the buoyancy of the instrument and then uh, comparing that to the density of the liquid. Uh, Another measurement is the pycnometer. Pycnometer is basically a a glass vessel that has a defined, a very well-defined volume, uh, and then uh, one just fills it up and weighs it to determine uh, the density. Uh, there's also the densitometer. That's a handheld device. The uh, one that we used uh, uses a vibrating U-tube. Um, uh, very, very accurately measures things and rapidly. And then finally, a uh, one that is probably not thought of a lot, but is used a lot in smaller breweries for sure, is the refractometer. Uh, we were lucky enough to have a research-grade refractometer rather than those um, kaleidoscope-type refractometers that you see brewers often use on the floor. Okay, cool. Hey, just curious, have you ever heard of a, a something called a Bigeschwinger? Uh When I was in brewing school in, in Berlin, we... Uh, that was sort of the gold standard density measurement. I assume it's just uh, some weird German name for an, <laughs> an old densitometer, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that one I, I'm not familiar with. I'll have to look that up. All right, cool. Um, okay, so let's um, uh, let's hear about the uh, the different types of bias that can affect accuracy in these instruments. One thing we were very interested in doing was determining how much bias there is in a measurement, particularly of such an important measurement as wart density. Um, Because if the bias can be mitigated or reduced, then that particular measurement can be made more accurate or more precise. Um, And there are actually three main sources of error that exist in any measurement. Uh, one is uh, sort of like a random error. That would be like the noise that you might find just because you turned on an instrument. It has some noise associated with it. You might think of it as static on a radio. Um, another measurement error or bias is called systematic error. And that's the result of some sort of inherent problem uh, with the measurement procedure. Or it could be um, 
an instrument that's not measuring things correctly or not set correctly. Um, and those kind of errors uh, are fairly easy to remove if you can identify what they are or at least mitigate them. Um, things that we mentioned about including temperature um, and humidity can cause some significant systematic error and therefore accounting for those you can remove most of that error. The final kind of error is called operator error and this is just a major class of error that occurs because of the person that's making the measurement. Um, Usually it's due to a worker's inexperience with the measurement or with the procedure or lack of um, of training in the proper techniques with that uh, with that particular experiment. And if you can remove that, again, you can improve the precision and accuracy of a measurement. So is it safe to say we can never get rid of all of those different types of errors that we just have to kind of do the best we can to mitigate them? Or can some of them be sort of eliminated uh, altogether? Um, for the most part, operator error, uh, you can get it close to removing, but you're only going to mitigate it. Uh, random error, that one's there. You can't remove it. You can improve the quality of your instrument to try to remove as much of the random error as possible, but it's almost always going to be there. And systematic error, um, that one you can remove or reduce depending upon what the error is. For instance, if it's a temperature um, problem that's causing the systematic error. If you correct the temperature so that you do not adjust the temperature, then essentially you can remove that as a systematic error. But for the most part, all of these, you're just mitigating them. Let's get one more definition, set of definitions out of the way. Uh, describe the difference between accuracy and precision. Sure. When we were looking at these numbers, we really wanted to, or looking at these instruments, we were really interested in trying to find the one that is not only the most accurate, but the most precise. Um, we can think of accuracy and precision as um, two different terms, but related to each other. Accuracy is how close you are to the correct answer. So if we can define something and say, this is the correct answer. How close did we get to it? That's a measurement of our accuracy. Precision is how close each of our measurements are to each other. So, for instance, if I threw darts at a dartboard and I kept getting in the lower right quadrant of the, of the dartboard, then I might be precise, but not accurate. And what we'd like to do is make sure that every time I threw a dart, I'm precise and accurate and all of my darts land right in the center. Tell us how you set up this experiment. Right. So in order to perform an experiment like this, we needed to identify the four instruments that we were going to evaluate. Then we set up a series of standards uh, with known densities. And these were uh, solutions that we prepared um, using standard uh, laboratory methods to determine their de density. Um, we used sucrose solutions. However, it doesn't really matter what the solution is if you're just measuring the density of it. Once those solutions were prepared, we then used each instrument 
and measured the density of each of those solutions. So of the six or seven solutions that we prepared, each solution was measured a minimum of 10 times for each of the four instruments that we measured or that we examined. So we had at least 10 measurements for the hydrometer of each of the six solutions, etc., etc., etc. Once we had all of those data put together for each of the measurements, we could then do um, statistical analysis, standard deviation, Q-tests, and things like that to get the data to be as reproducible as possible. All right. I want to... Um... I want to read a quote from your TQ paper and ask you to elaborate. Quote, the best operating procedure identified in the literature was further developed for each instrument using a trial and error approach until the greatest precision as measured by the percent relative standard deviation for each measurement was obtained. End quote. Tell us, tell us more about that. Explain. Right. That. So, so for each of the different hydrometer, pycnometer, refractometer, and densitometer, we spent a, a couple weeks looking at the exact procedure we would follow to measure the density of a, of a standard. So for the hydrometer, for instance, we thought of every possible way to measure the, the density of a solution using a hydrometer, and we wrote down the exact steps that one might take. Eventually, uh, and then we'd measure the, the, the density of the solution and determine its uh, relative uh, standard deviation. And then we'd tweak the um, procedure just a little bit and then measure the relative standard deviation. Eventually, we came up with a procedure that worked for the researcher and for our equipment and for our location that was spot on what gave us the best relative standard deviation. Um, for instance, uh, for the hydrometer, the first step would have been to put the standard solution in a, a water bath held exactly at 20.0 degrees. The next step would be to withdraw a sample and place it into the hydrometer jar, which was also situated inside the water bath at exactly 20.0 degrees, etc., etc., until the number was generated by the hydrometer was actually the number recorded. Talk about the uh, talk about the type of hydrometers you tested. Were these the combined thermometer hydrometers that you can find in most craft breweries? You know, the ones that come in three different ranges? Right. Um, these were the, the standard uh, triple scale work hydrometers you might find in a homebrew store. Um, one that can could measure from 0.99 all the way to 1.070 or something like, or 1.1 or something, uh, specific gravity or density. Um, and uh, we wanted to make sure that the hydrometer was as common as you might find. So we, we tried not to use the ones with built-in thermometers. By the way, that was a common um, concern uh, when writing this paper as if we were using um, the correct grade or research grade of the hydrometer, that if we used a more accurate hydrometer that 
at a much uh, more narrow scale, would that have changed the results? And what do you think about that? And and I I do think that it would have changed the results a little bit and maybe made them more precise and hopefully a little bit more accurate. All right. Well, maybe you just have to do it again, right? I know, right? <laughs> Paper number two. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the other instruments that you evaluated. Sure. The pycnometer is a uh, not very common uh, technique that's used for measuring the density of wart. However, uh, it is a very well-known scientific instrument uh, that's relatively inexpensive. Therefore, we thought it uh, would be necessary to at least examine it. Um, the pycnometer itself is a um, pear-shaped flask that has a little um, cap on top that has a hole in it. Um, and the researcher would fill it all the way up to the top and then place the cap in. And at the correct temperature, all of the liquid that remains inside that doesn't squirt out the little hole is exactly the same as the volume that's printed on the on the side of the pycnometer. All one has to do at that point is then just weigh it on a balance. And then you know the mass from the balance, you know the volume from the side of the pycnometer, and you can determine the density. Um, in order to account for everything, this procedure was a little bit longer um, in order to get the best results. And that include drying the pycnometer overnight in a warm oven just to make sure that there was no water adhered to the flask. Because the flask does have to be weighed prior to filling it. So we can subtract the weight of the flask. Um, the same thing is true about the temperature. Once you start the procedure, everything is done at 20 degrees using water baths. And everything stays basically in that water bath during the, the filling and the measurement. Except for taking it out and weighing it on the balance. And that's to make sure that the entire apparatus and the liquid maintain that 20-degree temperature. And when all that was done, it ended up being an extremely useful um, procedure to run and get a good sense as to what a pycnometer can tell us. All right. Uh, what's next? Densitometer? The densitometer, yeah. The densitometer that we used was an Anton Parr uh, DMA 35 Basic. It's a little handheld uh, densitometer with a vibrating U-tube uh, in it. Um, there is an ASBC method of analysis uh, called BEER2B uh, that we use to uh, run that particular experiment. Um, we did modify it just slightly, but other than that, uh, that experiment uh, ran quickly. And essentially, uh, you depress uh, a knob on the densitometer, withdraw a small sample into the densitometer, and then the computer basically tells you the density right there on the spot. So um, the researchers uh, all love that one because it is lightning fast um, to, get the, to get the final answer. Whereas the hydrometer takes a little bit of doing, and so the pycnometer takes a lot of work. The, uh, the densitometer was just push a button, and uh, very, very nice. 
Yeah. Seen lots more of those in craft breweries than you used two years ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, the, the trusty uh, refractometer, I guess. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that. Now, our trusty refractometer, right? We, uh, if you go to many of the smaller breweries around or even some of the larger ones, you might see somebody holding a kaleidoscope style refractometer up to the, their eye and uh, then trying their best to figure out what it's telling them inside um, measuring or obtaining a number from those types of refractometers is extremely difficult. So uh, an accurate number. Uh, so what we have done is uh, we have an, an, a research grade refractometer known as the Abe 3L manufactured by Bausch and Lomb. And uh, we used it to measure the index refraction for the samples um, of wart that we were doing. Uh, Again, everything was maintained at 20 degrees, and that resulted in us uh, getting an index refraction for the wart sample. Now, in this particular case, an index refraction is not the same thing as a density. And so you have to correlate the uh, index refraction back to. Uh, the density. So what we did is we converted the um, the data that we obtained into degrees Plato. Um, and once we had degrees Plato, then we converted it using a published formula um, to go from degrees Plato into uh, specific gravity. <music> Coming up, being off in your temperature by just a tenth of a degree or so can cause the standard deviation to change significantly for a set of numbers. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Today's podcast is sponsored by BSG. When planning your next brewing journey, consider traveling domestically with your malt choice. As distributors of quality domestic malts like Rar and Gambrinus, BSG gives you the freedom to explore a world of flavors, but at local prices. So you can cut costs, but not quality. Start exploring at bsgcraftbrewing.com. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. I really hope you listen to what I'm about to say because I'm spending my own money to say it. 
Most listeners think this podcast is my full-time job, but I actually spend most of my waking hours improving the Lupulin Exchange, which I launched in 2014. I hope that like this show, the exchange has been helpful to you. Would you do me a favor? Buy your next box of hops on the Lupulin Exchange and let me know how I can make the experience even better. I answer every support ticket personally, and I'd love to hear from you. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Paul, Minneapolis has their winter meeting at Blackstack Brewing March 2nd. District Northern Illinois teams up with the Illinois Craft Brewers Guild once again for the annual convention March 6th and 7th. Don't miss the small business Big Impact Master Brewers webinar March 14th. The multi-district event known as the Eastern Technical Conference is back. March 24th and 25th at the Atlantic Sands Hotel and Conference Center in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. District Eastern Canada meets in Montreal March 29th. District Rocky Mountain is accepting applications for the newly formed Hoppy Grandma Scholarship until March 31st. The Hoppy Grandma Scholarship honors Carmen Duran by assisting brewers with the tuition of brewing courses to help advance their careers. Details can be found in the scholarship section of the District Rocky Mountain page on the Master Brewers website. District St. Louis is holding a yeast symposium April 20th. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River April 21st and 22nd. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 9th. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join. back to the show. Okay. Let's get into the, uh, into the results. Uh, did you uncover any calibration or, or any other systematic errors with any of the instruments? Um, the only systematic error that we were not completely sure about would have been, um, say for the hydrometer did the piece of paper that's inside the hydrometer slip uh, and provide us a slightly uh, different reading and it is possible when looking at the data to say that that might actually have been the case that in the hydrometer um, the piece of paper uh, that has the scale in it may not have been most accurately placed and this is a uh, definitely a product of uh, the cost that we incurred in purchasing a hydrometer. Had we spent the money to buy the scientific hydrometer, I'm sure we would have gotten numbers that were maybe a little bit more uh, aligned with what the calculated specific gravities would have been. 
but there wasn't really any other um, uh, systematic error that we did find. All right. So which instruments were the most and least precise? So there's two ways to measure it. Uh, if you're going to measure the precision of something, you want to know its standard deviation of the of all the measurements. And so we measured uh, each one 10 times and then calculated the relative percent standard deviation. In doing so, we found that um, the most precise one was the densitometer. It seemed to give the reproducible results every time we used it. Uh, not unsurprising that it would do so. Um, the worst in terms of precision was the hydrometer, followed very, very, very closely behind by the pycnometer. They were the least precise of the two, where the numbers jumped up and down just a little bit amongst each of the 10 measurements. All right. Your paper indicated that the refractometer had good accuracy, but there were a few caveats. Talk about that. Yeah. So the, the, as we all know, the refractometer works really, really great in binary solutions to measure the density of something. Um, so what we're talking in a binary solution, we're talking water plus uh, some maltose or some other uh, sugars. But when you have a tertiary system, minimum ternary system like uh, uh, water, sugar, residual sugar, and ethanol, uh, the refractometer becomes uh, a difficult beast at best to, to tame. And so we went about looking at the refractometer as, you know, from the, the fact that we're also using a research-grade refractometer. And if we have the most accurate results we can get from the refractometer, that's great. However, the refractometer that we used was extremely expensive compared to the kind that might be typically found in a brewery. So in comparison, in comparison of what we use versus what's probably in practice, I don't know that the the values that we're saying here for the refractometer would be directly applicable to what's going on in the brewery. Okay. How did the other instruments perform in, in regards to accuracy? So um, in terms of accuracy, the, the most accurate um, would be a measurement of the percent error in its measurement from the actual density. And the most accurate was the pycnometer, by far. Uh, the densitometer was very close to second. The refractometer was in that same ballpark. And both the pycnometer, densitometer, and refractometer are all great options for measuring accuracy. And that, that kind of brings us to the, to the take-home message from looking at all of this. And that is um, comparison of things that make a difference or make uh, that we're impo uh, are important in the brewing industry. For instance, if I have to measure 14 fermenters as a cellarman walking around and measuring their uh, apparent extract or the extract potential that still remains in those flasks or in those uh, CCVs, I'm not only concerned with how accurate I am, but I'm also concerned with what's the length 
of time it's going to take me to get this done. Um, what's the cost associated with doing this? And then how easy is it for me to use? Um, can I train other people quickly to go around and uh, knock this out? Um, and so not just comparing uh, accuracy and precision, I think it's important to also look at sort of key things that make a difference as we're actually measuring something. Okay. So uh, why don't you sum up those results? Tell us, you know, sort of which instrument or instruments you're recommending to brewers uh, based on this. So if you were looking at measuring just the density, it doesn't matter how long it takes. You want the best density measurement you can get. You're just worried about accuracy. You don't care if it's precise or not. Pycnometer seems to be one of the best options. It's going to take you a very long time to get it done. The training, etc., is going to be an issue um, because it's not an easy procedure that we were able to develop. Now, if you want to switch that a little bit and you want to go for the most precise instrument I can get, um, where all my numbers that I get all the time seem to be right on the money uh, with each other, uh, then that would be the densitometer. So if the densitometer is giving really good precision, um, then that means all the numbers are close. And all I need to do is just realize that, well, they may not be the most accurate. I'm getting the same number each time I measure it. Now, there's a problem with the densitometer, and that is uh, the cost. So it takes no time at all to run, but you're going to spend a little bit more money to get those measurements. If you look at the refractometer, the relative cost is also comparable to a densitometer, but there's an awful lot of play in the numbers because of the need to do unit conversion from the refractive index to density and then to convert degrees Plato into specific gravity. You could imagine that recalculating those numbers and you could kind of make those numbers match whatever you wanted them to be because it's a formula where you could just change the constant just a little bit. So the refractometer, while it does give fairly uh, precise and accurate um, information, it's just a little too long, a little too pricey, um, and there are other methods that could work just as well, assuming we're using the research-grade refractometer. Now, if we want to go to the probably one of the more common um, devices used to measure density, the hydrometer, we might look and say, okay, my accuracy is not necessarily the best. My precision is not necessarily the best. But I can train anybody to measure the hydrometer. It's pretty easy to use. It doesn't take very long to do. It takes a little bit of time, but not terribly long. But more importantly, the cost is on the low end. And I can measure the hydrometer or use the hydrometer to measure things everywhere I go. So the hydrometer may be the best call, even though it's not giving the most accurate or most precise data. It just depends upon the particular brewer in a particular situation. For instance, if I'm running a brewery and I need the data now, I'm going for a densitometer. It's going to cost me a little bit of money, but I know I can run out there into the, onto the floor 
grab those numbers as quickly as I can and be back. If I don't have a lot of money, I'm a smaller brewer, I would rather invest the money instead of into a densitometer into, say, a new lenticular filter or something, then I might go with the hydrometer. If I'm, uh, because it's inexpensive, it takes a little longer to use, not a lot longer, but it takes a little bit longer to use. And the data is close enough that I will still be happy with the results I get. The other case would might be, hmm, maybe I am doing a research project, uh, doing some R&D on a particular fermentation, or maybe on uh, a wort extraction, or a mash extraction, and I need some really good accurate numbers, um, and I don't care how long it takes, is I'll just go ahead and get the sample, and if it takes me 30 minutes to get the answer, then I'll just do it. Then I'm going to go with, say, the pycnometer. So in each of the cases where we were looking at, while we were thinking, we're going to come out of this study thinking that one of these instruments is going to be the best, and everybody should flock to using it. That was our goal. (laughs) And instead, we found quite the opposite is true. We went and looked at each of these and found out that Each has its own place, Um, and it depends upon the situation that the brewer and the brewery are feeling at that time or that are part of the operating procedure for the the brewery. So the hydrometer has its place, the pycnometer does, the densitometer does, and even the refractometer does to give us the data that we want knowing how accurate or how precise the data is and how much money did it cost and what was the time involved in getting that number. What is Parallax and how did it come into play? Parallax is an error or a bias that can occur when reading an instrument. One of the better ways to describe it might be to think of your speedometer in your car. It has a needle um, that moves back and forth that is laid over top of a scale. If you are not looking dead on to the needle, the number that you see on the scale is not the number that the instrument is trying to tell you. For instance, the passenger might think you're only going 30 miles an hour, whereas you, the driver, looking straight at the needle, would see that you're going 50. Uh, because you have a much more accurate and right on top of uh, view of the needle. That's parallax. Okay. So how did that um, how did that come into play in, during this experiment? So in this experiment, if you're measuring, say, the volume of a liquid, uh, there is a meniscus, and you want to make sure that you are lined up perfectly with the meniscus so that you can read the correct number off the scale. Same is true with a refractometer. Um, The refractometer that we used um, has a needle um, that's on top of a scale. You have to line your eyeball up right with it so you get the number. And with a little bit of practice on where to place your head, using the same researcher over and over and over again, we're able to reduce the amount of 
error and uh, increase the accuracy uh, by put positioning heads in certain locations. All right. Excellent. Do you want to say anything about sort of um, what you observed in regards to any deviations from procedure or temperature and, and mm. how they affected your results? Yeah, I didn't mention any of that, but it is important. Uh, temperatures is something that can contribute significantly to systematic error. And it's very important when measuring density that you control that variable. Um, being off in your temperature by just a tenth of a degree or so can cause the standard deviation to change significantly for a set of numbers. For instance, if you measure the temperature at 20.0 degrees at the start of your measurements, and 10 samples later, the temperature is now 20.1 degrees, that's that temperature change is enough to cause the relative standard deviation for that measurement of those 10 samples to be huge, at which point you're saying that none of my results are precise. And therefore, they, you know, there's a little bit of accuracy problem too. And so it's very, very important to control the temperature. You may think, okay, well, how does temperature cause these numbers to change? Uh, it's all based upon the volume of a solution. Um, water's volume changes as the temperature changes. And if the density is the mass divided by the volume, it doesn't take too much to notice that if you change the volume, you're going to change the density. So if I change the temperature, I'll inadvertently change the volume, and now the de density is going to change. And that's where the systematic error comes in. Do you want to comment at all about those uh, those hydrometers that have the built-in temperature correction? Um, you know, there uh, it's a tool to use, but um, I think the accuracy of that conversion <laughs> is a is a bit misleading, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, so the in some hydrometers, you might find a temperature or a thermometer built into it. We're already dealing with how do we calibrate our hydrometer, right? Now we've got a thermometer inside it. We always have to calibrate. Um, I think it's better to have a separate and independent thermometer that we can calibrate and a hydrometer that's calibrated as well. And so if they're combined, the temperature can be off by just a little bit. Um, you might not know that it's off because you're reading a thermometer that you can't calibrate. And therefore, your hydrometer reading has a, an adjustment to it that you need to make because the temperature's incorrect. Um, I would recommend, and rather than doing that, that we take a wart sample, we rapidly cool it to 20 degrees by putting it in a water bath. And when it reaches 20 degrees, then we do the measurement with the hydrometer. We don't have to worry about a thermometer inside the hydrometer or not. Say, for instance, you have a hydrometer that's calibrated for 60 degrees Fahrenheit, comes with a little um, a cheat sheet, basically, or an additions sheet that tells you that if you're measuring at 70 degrees, you need to add uh, so much to your degree Play-Doh. Um, 
those scales um, assume that the density that uh, was used to determine how much you have to add is the same density that you are playing with right now. But let's say you're on a really big beer and you're at 1090 grams per milliliter. Um, you're really up there and the scale that you're looking at to determine the adjustment in the degree Play-Doh is not necessarily the one that was um, used at 1090 for density. So that's why I say it's a much better option if you know that your instruments are calibrated for density at a particular temperature. Get the sample there. Get the sample, put it in a flask, stick it in a water bath, go collect two more samples. By the time you come back, the first sample's already at temp and you can measure it. And that's a better way to do it because you don't have to worry about a fudge factor, a correction that uses a calculation to estimate. We don't want to estimate, right? <laughs> but it's going to use an estimate uh, of what should be added or subtracted from some measurement. Yeah. That was Mike Mosier here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you want to learn more, check the show notes for a direct link to Mike's article in the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Mall, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Can't stop, can't stop, can't stop, can't stop, can't stop.